0: Welcome to the Maharatcast, my name is Rabba Ramey-Smith, I'm your host coming to you from London. I'm really excited about this episode because it combines one of the topics I have the hardest time talking about with one of the people I have the easiest time talking to. The topic is God in the face of suffering and death, and the guest is none other than my chavruta, Rabbanit Alyssa Thomas-Newborn. Rabbanit Alyssa is a member of the clergy at B'nai David Judea in Los Angeles. She graduated magna cum laude from Brandeis University with degrees in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies and Classical Studies Archaeology and Ancient History. She is a board-certified chaplain through the Association of Jewish Chaplains and has specialties in psychiatric care, palliative care, and end-of-life care. She has worked as a chaplain at Cedar sinai Medical Center, New York-Presbyterian-Columbia University Medical Center, and Bellevue Hospital. Rabbanita Lissa is on the board of the National Association of Jewish Chaplains. She is a member of the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health Clergy Roundtable and the Pico-Robertson Mental Health Neighborhood. In 2017, Rabbanita Lissa was chosen as one of the Forward 50, the 50 most influential, accomplished, and interesting American Jews. Many of us run away from conversations about death and God, but Rabbanita Lissa runs towards these conversations. So I sat down to talk to her about what it is she does and how she has the strength to do it. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell me what a chaplain is and what their role is? A chaplain is a
1: member of the interdisciplinary team in a hospital setting or in a hospice setting or a variety of uh, whole person healing teams. Uh, A chaplain provides care just like a social worker or a doctor or a psychologist on a team like that. Um, And the chaplain's role is really to take care of the spiritual needs or to highlight and be the voice for those needs on the team. Um, The chaplain is sometimes referred to as a spiritual care provider, um, but the role of the chaplain isn't to diagnose or fix or save or solve. The the chaplain is really there to be a supportive presence uh, and to help the, the patient access their spiritual resources. So when I was training in chaplaincy, I, I sort of created for myself three prongs of how I approach my chaplaincy. And I think um, that helped me really understand the work that I was doing. Um, so the first is telling the story of suffering. The chaplain is there to give the patient the space to tell their story of suffering in whatever form that may be. So sometimes that means actually telling their story of how they came into the hospital, how they're struggling, what's going on with their family, maybe what the what the hospitalization or the illness that they're dealing with is bringing up. Um, if someone's at the end of life, God forbid, being able to give them the space to explore and express what they think happens after death, um, giving them that space to Speak and be heard and be held. So that's telling the story of suffering. Uh, The second thing is accessing spiritual resources. So, uh, as a chaplain, some people serve as Jewish chaplains, meaning Jewish chaplains serving Jewish patients um, or Jewish clients. And some people serve as multi faith chaplains, meaning I can be a jewish chaplain but i'm serving a catholic patient or i walk into a room and i'm serving someone who has uh, no connection or care at all in relation to religion but the spiritual presence of a chaplain uh, is really sort of to address the existential bigger questions that are essential in health and healing, uh, including at the end of life. And I'm there to help them access their resources, not mine. And that's one of, I think, the great things about chaplaincy is it's not about it's not about me. I'm not walking in focusing on me. I'm focusing on the person who's there and being the best source of support for them. And that, that leads me to the last piece, providing presence and providing support. So sometimes people are in and out, especially in a hospital setting or a hospice setting. And being someone who's who's just able to sit with them, sometimes patients are intubated and they're not able to speak or God forbid someone is in a coma using music, using um, presence that maybe is beyond words, even holding someone's hand if that's something that's desired. There's a a variety of, of creative ways to care for someone's soul or for their esoteric existential needs. Um, And that's really what chaplaincy is about. You know, I've encountered patients who didn't believe in God or didn't believe in, in anything. I'm thinking of one patient in particular that, you know, he didn't, he didn't believe in anything, but when he couldn't talk and he was intubated and he was just only able to see the people coming into his room, he really wanted someone to be present with him. And for him to know that that person was there to nurture his soul and well-being not just to like take his blood Um, and so having a chaplain sit with him even though there wasn't a conversation happening even though there weren't prayers being said um, that's also a kind of spiritual care that can be offered Um, i'll add one more thing which is that one of the things that is really important in the role of a chaplain or spiritual care provider is making sure that the other care providers in the team both are taken care of in their own spiritual needs uh, meaning the chaplain is there, is there as a support for the doctors, for the uh, the social workers as well, you know, to be able to uh, hold them. And uh, the chaplain also is there to sort of explain the value of spiritual care itself. Meaning for most people, especially when they're going into a hospital setting, the last thing that they're thinking about is, you know, how how they're going to process the, um, the struggle and depression and spiritual sorrow of the loss of whatever time they've spent in the hospital or, you know, a variety of issues that come up that are set, seem secondary to our physical well-being, but um, end up being really important. So the chaplain's role is also to, to explain that value and be that voice for the patient on the team. Um, one last thing I'll add is that the the chaplain is a support for the family as well as the patient. And so one of the major roles is, is speaking to them, supporting them, uh, and, and being with them in that that process as well because being a caregiver is also a huge journey uh, in suffering, in hope, in caring and giving, and can be very depleting as well. What are some of the challenges you face as a chaplain? Chaplain, a rabbi, a rabbinite, a caregiver, a psychologist, in any role where you're providing presence and care and support for another person, uh, the experience of holding and listening to someone else's pain and not taking it on ourselves, where it becomes, you know, sort of like I'm, I'm just collecting sadness and sorrow and suffering and carrying it on my back. Um, that's one of the hardest things that we face. Anyone in that role is going to face having healthy boundaries and knowing where I end and another person begins, and knowing the baggage I bring into the situation and that I don't want to bring onto another person uh, is is essential. So if I know that in general, I have a propensity to want to fix, that's something that I want to do and is a part of my, um, my spiritual history, my family dynamics, if I know that's a thing, then if I'm in an, in a pastoral interaction and I feel that desire to fix come up, I know that that's me. I know that's coming from me and that's not actually something that's helpful for the person I'm serving. So I have to have the healthy boundary of recognizing that's mine and I'm going to process that and I'm going to have the self-care to work, that, work on that at another time. But it's not helpful for me to project that onto another person because that's just making it about me. And again, this isn't about me. But uh, if I find myself in an interaction where I know I'm generally not someone who gets really angry, that's not a, a character trait I have. It's not something I generally struggle with. I'm certainly a human, so I get angry at times. But if suddenly I'm feeling intense anger in a pastoral encounter, and we talk about this as sort of using your, uh, using yourself, using your vessel that you have having that that self-discernment self-differentiation um i can better help sometimes i know that it comes up as like feeling this pit in my stomach or like this emptiness inside of me and When I recognize that coming from another person, I can identify it and give it dignity uh, in a much more authentic way. And that's one of the things I love about chaplaincy is it's not about going in with a script or knowing what you're going to say or feeling like I have the answers. Because truthfully, like I've spent most of my life being a perfectionist who strives to have the answers. And I remember when I first learned in my chaplaincy training that that wasn't my job. It was like, such a relief like what a burden lifted off my shoulders i don't have to figure it out or be right or or provide anyone with an answer and if someone asks me a question like what happens after life what do you believe i don't have to answer that i can i can i can say something if i want to but it might actually be more harmful for me to answer it and project my own belief system on someone else but when it comes to what do you carry out of the door when you cross the threshold back out into our own lives uh, as caregivers and this goes back to um, really any kind of caregiver. This is a, a wisdom that I found very helpful. You know, knowing where I end and someone else begins um, makes it so I can say, I recognize that's, that's not mine to carry and I can hold it and give it dignity and be with them. But it's it's not something that I have to take with me on my back as I leave. I can hold it and then we can let it go together.
0: It sounds like you need to have really good self awareness in these situations and also really clear boundaries. But just like you inherently bring stuff into the room with you, I imagine you inevitably bring it out with you. What do you do to relax?
1: Having sources of self care in our lives is so important. So, you know, being able to talk to my husband, just be funny and real and have, you know, enjoyable moments together, we can, you know, have outings and, um, you know, decompress. Um, What's hard right now is that we're living in this pandemic and a lot of our coping tools and mechanisms are not as accessible. So um, right now I think I'm feeling especially like I'm being challenged to reflect on how I can nurture that part of myself. But um, I go back to like, to prayer to the people in my life that I can connect with and process with therapy exercise you know i think especially when we're people who are dwelling in a lot of end of life and suffering and some of the worst days of people's lives uh, it's, it's really really nourishing to know that we're we're there with them to be present and to love and hold um, we don't have to fix and we don't have to have the answers Um, and ultimately we really have to turn to God and say, God, this, you know, I can't carry this alone. Moshe couldn't carry this alone, you know, so why would I ever think I have the ability to carry it alone? I can't carry it alone. I have to give it to God.
0: A lot of people run away from the conversation about God and death, and those are Rabbinate Alyssa's wheelhouse. When she said that there's no script for this kind of care for these conversations, I realized that she doesn't even need a script because chaplaincy and spiritual care is really who she is. I have met countless people who say things like, yeah, I met Rabbi Lissa in college at a singing practice, and we talked about death and God within the first five minutes of talking. Or I met Rabbi Lissa on a summer program, and within a few minutes we were talking about the meaning of life. It's really just who she is. But I wanted to know specifically about the death piece. How does one find God in that space? And how do you bring God to others in that space?
1: When I, yeah, when I decided to serve God and God's people as a spiritual leader in whatever form that was going to look like, uh, and it has certainly evolved, I came to it at a time of a lot of death and suffering and illness. And I almost, like I I found God in that suffering and death uh, and I found my calling and my work in that space. So when people ask me, like, how could it be that you're like, why would you choose to run into that situation? And it's, I think it's the same for a lot of people who choose to work in palliative care and end of life care also as um, nurses or, or physicians or caregivers. Um, When you know that space intimately uh, in a personal way and somehow you found God, um, I think that it takes on a different color and it has a different quality to it. In uh, in my chaplaincy work, one of the questions I found to be most uh, helpful and meaningful and connecting uh, was to ask people where God was in this for them. And, you know, the answer to that question is totally different to every person that you ask. Um, sometimes the answer is that God isn't there. And that's part of the the spiritual care um, in identifying that. But, uh, you know, I, I remember I was personally uh, hospitalized at one point and I, I actually asked myself, like, where is God in this for you right now? And especially at the beginning of it, that's not what it felt like it was about. I was, you know, I, 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 was in pain. I was, I was miserable. I was scared. Um, I was, you know, I didn't know what was next. And especially when we don't have those, you know, a known, whether it's a diagnosis or a treatment, when we don't know the unknown also makes that experience much more unbearable and much harder to find God. Um, and I worked, you know, I really was present to myself in that process of like, you know, where, where is God in this for me? Why is God not here in this moment? Why is God here in this moment? Why, you know, why is this hard for me? And I guess when I think about my personal journey, uh, whether it was losing friends, a family, who are very, very close to me uh, in tragic ways, or if it was um, having family members who were very sick or my own sickness and, and hospitalization, um, I guess that's always been a really big part of the questions that I ask myself. And I'm very lucky that I have parents who are all about God language. So I grew up in a house where, you know, my my family talks very openly about God. You know, my mom is very encouraging about my relationship with God and making sure that it's um, dynamic, that it's nuanced, that I talk to God about the rough stuff and the good stuff. And it's not just, you know, turn to God when I'm happy and grateful, um, but also turn to God and say, I'm having a really hard time with this. Help me. Why is this not working? Um, my dad is the same way and they're both people of immense faith. And they're also both people who have had a lot of struggle in their own lives. But when it comes to the, the encounter of God specifically in death, I think I, I so because of that that nuanced approach in my faith of, you know, God is part of my life in the good times and in the, the bad times. Um, Rabbi Nachman teaches about how God is with us in the the deepest darkest hell, as well as in the wonderful joyful moments, and I really believe that, and I've seen it in my life. And I guess I think what gives me the the koach, but also the humility to walk into those spaces, uh, is because I've I've been there in my own way, and I I know that God's there even when we don't see God. Um, and I don't think that my job is to help someone else see what I see. I think my my job uh, is to to hold them to be a a a presence of love and someone who who does have faith in my own way, um, but to help them see what they what they believe and what they connect to and what gives them meaning. I, I had a phone call with someone who was at the end of life. Um, the person passed away a few days after we spoke and I wasn't able to visit in person because of the restrictions at the time. But we had this video FaceTime call and he, was, he had a lot to say and reflect on in terms of what happens at the end of life. And it hit, actually one of his family members said to me, we're so grateful that you talked to him because he doesn't he he needs to talk about his belief in God after life but he doesn't want to do that with anyone in his family because he doesn't want to burden them and he said you're the only person that he knows that he can talk to about this and also who isn't afraid to talk to him about this talking about God and encountering God in death is one of the scariest conversations or thoughts or topics that any of us can have um, because it sometimes it brings up really serious questions and really serious doubts um, and for someone who is willing to have those conversations with others, uh, it can be a real gift. I think that um, often we come into those kinds of conversations being afraid of what we could hear or what we could say and what that means. Um, so it sort of goes back to not really having the answers but having the faith in God to, to face that doubt or to face that unknown. So I guess that those are the moments where anxiety doesn't matter and the stress of this world doesn't matter. What matters is just loving each other and being in that moment um, so that no one has to be alone with those questions.
0: It's scary enough to have these conversations with one person, but as I think of everyone involved, family dynamics, perceived faith, fear of disappointing one's children, I keep coming back to the word brave. It's brave to have these conversations. And I wanted to know how she balances what to say, knowing her patients' fears and truths, and what she says to family. And more practically for us, what can we say to family? So
1: whether someone is in a, whether it's a shul setting or a hospital setting or any setting, recognizing that every every family member uh, who is in the journey of having a loved one reach the end of life, anyone involved in that is has a whole narrative and a whole process they're going through and everyone deals with it differently. So recognizing that there's caring for the person who's at the end of life and what they're going through. And, you know, we say in our tradition that, uh, you know, Hashem is is at the bed of the the ill person. Hashem is really there in the same way that Hashem's presence is in the temple. Hashem's presence is at that bed. So it's a holy space and something that we honor. And that's another reason why for me doing that work is so meaningful because it's, it's encountering God and our mortality and our human need for connection in a way that we rarely do. Family members in that situation need to be uh, given a space to, to talk without judgment. Um, you know, something that's generally not helpful is providing someone in that situation advice or um, telling them like, oh, this is why this is happening to you. Um, I think what's much more helpful is to help that person identify what makes sense to them or what's meaningful to them or what is hard for them and how they can address it. So um, I know, you know, for example, a lot of families I've encountered, uh, you know, go through this, this period of denial. And why wouldn't we? I mean, I, you know, there, There's also, it's the same thing like with a therapist that maybe you can provide that care to someone else, but it's a totally different thing to provide it for ourselves and our families. So we're all human. No one has the answers. Um, but I, you know, I can say just from experience that um, you know, when we're in that space and we're in that, that moment of denial or um, Gamzula Toba, like everything is for the good. For some people, that works really well spiritually. It's like it gives them chizuk, it gives them strength and something to, um, to be grounded in. And for a lot of people, that whitewashes their pain. So I think recognizing that uh, very practically in the conversations that we have with friends and family who are caring for a loved one at the end of life, um, not trying to give our own answers, but rather hearing theirs. Being willing to listen to their doubt and questions and struggles without judgment, um, you know certainly the the taskless of like providing uh, child care if possible or you know stepping up to bring food or or something when it's needed. Um, I remember I once went into an ICU room where uh, the I had a pastoral encounter, and then this very, it was a very from family. Um, they were yeshivish. They, they really wanted to give me food. Like, they had had food in their room, and they really wanted to give me that food. And in general, like, usually in a hospital setting, you don't take food from from patients. And they they just felt like I had given them something. They wanted to give me something back. So I think there's there's this also need for dignity. And no matter who we're talking to in those circumstances of, like, how can I also appreciate the fact that they're going through something very, very excruciating that any of us would feel, you know, not ourselves in, like when in what opportunity can I, I make it possible for them to feel more like themselves, to have that dignity, to have that relief. Sometimes there's really tough questions that no one wants to ask, but that need to be asked. And that just even giving them words can be a relief. Uh, and you know, our sort of like our societal way of thinking is like, you know, oh, I can't ask that, that's not okay. But sometimes if no one's asking it, it makes it so much worse. For example, um, what are you most afraid of right now? Like what, when, when you think about your father, mother, XYZ person, what, what scares you the most? And like giving someone the space to even just admit that instead of saying, Baruch Hashem, everything's gonna be okay, um, sometimes can be liberating. And I think we just have to also know what he, like be sensitive to what each other needs. Forcing that kind of conversation with someone who it's not going to work for also else is not necessarily the best.
0: Wow. What are you most afraid of? That is not something I would have thought to ask, which made me realize that there are probably a lot of helpful things we could be saying if we only knew what to say and how to say it. So I pushed for a few more things to say, and here they are.
1: A couple of questions that come to mind of things that maybe we wouldn't think to ask, but that can be very helpful or at least begin to open a conversation are things like, what are you most afraid of right now? Where is God in this for you? Especially if we're talking about a point of maybe trauma or loss or end of life to ask, uh, you know, what was your last conversation with that person when was the last time you saw them Um, because usually when we think about that last moment it's not the moment in the hospital when a person doesn't feel like them anymore it gives us a chance to access who they actually are what we want to hold on to especially when someone's trying to make a really tough end-of-life care decision like about um, the treatment uh, if, if someone wants to go into palliative care or comfort care, or if they, they need aggressive treatment or not, and they, the person is not conscious to make them. I, I've seen a lot of people find immense comfort in being asked, you know, what do you think that person would say to you right now if they were here? Uh, and that, you know, that can be a liberating thing because then it takes us it off of us for making the decision and gives the person a chance to, to hear what might be most needed. Often we carry a lot of guilt, especially if we're, caregiving, um, and, and a lot of anger at ourselves. But it's true also when we're the patient. So uh, asking ourselves, can we forgive ourselves? Or are you feeling guilty? Um, those questions are things that no one ever asks us. But when we're given the chance to think, you know, what am I most afraid of? Where is God in all of this for me? Um, you know, when was the last time I encountered this person? Uh, What would they say to me right now if they were here or if they were able to communicate to me? What would they say? Um, As well as, you know, what guilt am I carrying? Are there ways in which I want or need to forgive myself or forgive someone else in this situation? Uh, Those are just some that come to mind for me of questions that, No one ever is going to ask us because it's so not how we normally function and at the same time there are questions that we really really need to ask to either be asked or to ask ourselves as part of our spiritual care and healing.
0: This episode is sponsored by Nishama, the Association of Jewish Chaplains. The NAJC is the major certification and membership body for professional Jewish chaplains. NAJC provides educational opportunities to enhance the education of its members through its annual conference and through intensive regional training programs throughout the year. NAJC members serve in a variety of institutions, including hospitals and other healthcare settings, long-term residential institutions, prisons, community chaplains, police and fire chaplains, as well as on college and university campuses. Board certification by the NAJC is recognized as the standard for professional Jewish chaplains. The NAJC membership consists of rabbis, cantors, and laypersons from all streams of Judaism who come together to learn best practices in serving patients and clients wherever they are found. Jewish chaplains help bring Shabbat, Yom Tov, and Jewish spirituality to places where people often lose hope and have difficulty addressing their spiritual beliefs. For more information, visit their website, www.najc.org. That's www.najc.org. I want to shift gears and talk a little bit about a personal experience that Rabbanitlis and I had together. A few years ago when I was living in LA, Rabbanitlis and I would go out to lunch every Monday. But on Monday, October 2nd, 2017, when I got into Rabbanit Alyssa's car to go to lunch, instead of driving to our favorite spot, we drove straight to Las Vegas. You see, the day before, on Sunday, October 1st, 2017, there had been a mass shooting at a country music festival in Las Vegas. I also want to preface this conversation by telling you that this is one of the first times Rabbanit Alyssa and I have rehashed the story together which is odd because we talk very often and process most things together. Just to give you a little background to the story, when we arrived in Las Vegas, we went straight to a curbside vigil where we prayed with people, talked to people, and heard their stories. This was at about 11.30 p.m. But at around midnight, we headed to the convention center, which is where families were waiting to hear back from doctors and police officers about whether or not their family members were alive or dead. At this point, they were simply missing. We had no idea what we were walking into at the convention center. Hundreds of people sleeping on the floor and on cots, many of them were awake and crying, trying to make sense of what happened and just hoping that they would be one of the lucky ones who would receive good news. As you can imagine, this was an incredibly intense experience, but I wanted to rehash it here in this space to get a sense of where Rabbanit Alyssa's head was at in terms of finding God in that space. And as is the case most times I talk to Rabani Lisa, I had a few breakthroughs of my own. When we made that decision
1: to go to Vegas together at the last minute after this horrific attack, uh, it was a split second thing and we did it because we knew it was the right thing to do and we wanted to be that supportive presence in whatever way we could, including if it meant bringing supplies, but also if it meant just listening or if it meant just standing in the building uh, as a support. And you know, thank God we have Rav Avi Weiss, our our Rav and teacher, who told us, you know, in general, whenever there's a need, just go. You know, don't don't overthink it. Just be there for each other. Uh, and that that I think we also heard in our ears. Um, I don't know, but when we walked into that space, I am with you. It's it was excruciating. It was an immense unknown of and, and humbling of, you know wait a second, why are we here? Like, what could we do to help? You know, sometimes thinking we can help is like, we want to walk in God's ways. We want to be with the sick, which we're called to do uh, as a mitzvah from Hashem. But then when we get there, most of us have that moment, including me of like, oh my gosh, you know, how, how could I possibly be of any support right now? Um, and having that, you know, self-doubt and also awareness of, uh, you know, I think of Moshe at the burning bush. It's a recognition of holiness, but there's also there's a bush on fire, you know. There's something happening that is totally beyond um, my control, and I, I I don't know how to explain it, and I don't have meaning or answers to provide, and I'm scared too, and I have an immense amount of doubt. Um, so going into that space, I actually think feeling that is not just a part of being human, but it's actually an important feeling to have because if we walked into a space like that, thinking that we could save everyone, we wouldn't be able to actually provide any real tangible help. And so I think when we went there and we both felt that way, um, it's actually, it's a part of, of being someone who can provide spiritual care and also just a part of being human. We were also processing, being there, and that there was an attack of that magnitude, and um, for those you know who weren't there with us, being in this you know like huge gymnasium auditorium type space with hundreds of cots and families waiting to find out if their loved ones were alive or dead. Um, I mean, that's that is the worst nightmare. And I think acknowledging that people were living the worst days of their lives, and walking into the conversation and knowing that everything that we say and do how we look at each other, how we hear them. Um, I mean, those are the things that we really remember of the most traumatic times in our lives. And I think of, you know, we had one conversation with uh, a family where they were waiting for one of their siblings. And one of the kids uh, was sharing with us about the last time um, that that sibling had encountered her. And, you know, it, it gave this glimmer of a moment of memory and love and hope. But the context is still devastating and chilling. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the question of where is God in, in that for us? You know, moments of extraordinary trauma and pain and hatred and terror. Um, you know, I, I, I think to, to say, oh, of course, God is there holding us and loving us. I mean, that, that doesn't ring true for most of us, and it certainly doesn't ring true for me for that to just be the answer. Um, I, th- I think what, what gives me comfort and what feels authentic is one, when, when someone doesn't doesn't claim to have an answer that's right to that question. Um, and two, uh, that sometimes the best way in which we see God in our lives is through each other. So, you know, we're all created, as all we're created in God's image and seeing, you know, a family together, trying to have hope, supporting each other in the worst nightmare, um, and, and then to talk to us and to tell us that story and to tell us about the light that their daughter gave them. Um, I mean, to me, that, that felt like a gift that they gave to us. And it's much less about, you know, what I gave to them, much more about what I feel they gave to me in that moment. Um, Not in a selfish way, but I mean, you know, I don't know if I necessarily provided something that really like they walk away with and think about. I I think, you know, more, I was like a witness to their, um, their holiness. You know, we, we prayed with people too. You know, there are a lot of people who find comfort in turning to God in those moments because they need to, we need to. Sometimes God is in those places because we call God to be in those places. Um, but I think back to a, an encounter I had with someone at New York Presbyterian when a patient, um, we were talking, you know, as was Purim, we were talking about the time of simcha. I mean, this is a, a moment where we're supposed to be marving the simcha, we're supposed to be increasing our joy and celebration. And yet here he was worrying about his kids and trying to balance taking care of his family and also taking care of his dying father. And how is he possibly supposed to be Marvin Basimcha? And what he was doing was learning the halacha, or like reading it out loud to his father who was in a coma uh, and close to the end of life. And, you know, he was like reading this text about how to have joy. So I asked, like, how do you possibly have joy in this time? Um, You know, like where, where are you finding that joy? And he said that what gives him joy and where he sees God is in the people bringing him meals. And in, you know, the people in his community who have offered to be there with his kids or to like play a game with them while he's at the hospital, you know, just for him, like exclusively the experience of God in that place was coming through people. And that's, that's been something that I've held on to for a really long time that we can, sometimes we can find God in each other more than we can find God by just looking around and saying, where are you? And it doesn't mean that you know, we suddenly have all the answers or that the pain isn't there or that the sorrow and suffering and terror are gone because, I mean, we know from being in Vegas, it wasn't. Um, but I, I, I guess from our tradition that, as I said before, Rabbi Nachman says that there's, Hashem is in the darkest hell. We have to really search and look for God. Um, I think that we all have a different answer to that, but we also really want an answer to
0: that too. I realized that one of the reasons I hadn't talked about this is because I hadn't really dealt with the fact that I almost was at that concert. It was only a day or two before the festival that my friend and I decided not to go. I think being in that space was especially difficult because I kept looking around me and seeing these families and thinking that it could have been my family sitting there looking for me. It took me having this conversation with Reba Lisa to realize that that's why I've been avoiding this conversation for the last few years. Even in sitting and having a conversation as friends, Rabbanita Lissa is always pushing people to dig deeper. The fact that you or
1: anyone could feel the the feeling of it could have been me when we encounter extreme trauma and terror, that's that's like the core also of empathy. And so it's, it's not something that we want to crush in ourselves or get rid of um, and processing that trauma and what any of this triggers for us because The truth is anytime anyone, forget like a rabbi, a chaplain walks into, you know, a a space where someone's at the end of life. Anytime anyone encounters that, including when you read in the bulletin that someone passed away, it can trigger for us every experience that we've had with loss or every experience that we've had with illness and fragility. And I think that's what makes us human and as long as we have access to that and are you know doing healthy things to process it it's something that we actually need to cherish because that's our empathy and our ability to connect with each other and care about each other the flip side of it is that you know we don't want it to be something that's crippling where we can't function because because we're filled with guilt or we're filled with sadness so you know i i just want to say that i think the fact that you felt that is testament to your soul and your unbelievable empathy
0: Rabbanit Alyssa talked about how she grew up in a house that was full of faith and discussions about God, but it was also a home that was very open about death. Part of that is just an occupational hazard of having a mother in spiritual care like Rabbanit Alyssa's mom. But I want to know what it was like to grow up in a house of death and God. How did that shape her as a spiritual leader?
1: Oh my gosh, I hated it. I... Grew up in a home where not only did we talk very explicitly about God and God's presence always with us and being in dialogue with God, which was, you know, fantastic and shaped me as who I am, but talking about death, I hated it. Because as a kid, when my mom, let's say, went away for a weekend or something, um, or I don't know. When my mom like ran, it was very rare, but whenever it happened, she'd be like, okay, this is where the safety deposit box is. This is all the stuff you need to know if I die. And it's like, every time something innocuous happens, I don't want to think about you dying. And that was something that my mom made a really big part of our jargon. Uh, and frankly, like every one of my family is like that. You know, my dad uh, is is struggling right now with kidney failure and the conversations that we've had about, you know, end of life care wishes and things like, I don't want to have those conversations because I don't want to think about him dying. And that's, I think what most human beings feel when these kinds of questions come up. That being said, I have learned through, maybe it's just like immense repetition or my mom and dad just finally won in terms of like conveying this, this value to me. Um, And also from my chaplaincy training, I I got to see it up close and personal. But having these kinds of conversations, um, whether it's, you know, ethical wills or advanced care directives in advance where we, we talk about end of life wishes or just sort of having an awareness of death in a way that shows love to our loved ones is actually one of the greatest gifts that we can give each other. And what I mean by this is when God forbid anyone's in this situation, but there are times where someone has a loved one who dies or is at the end of life and decisions need to be made and it's totally unclear what that person wants and it creates this immense stress for the the person who is surviving them because they have to figure out what they can live with and they have to make those decisions on their behalf and it feels like you know, we're not in charge of life and death, so how do we make these decisions? Baruch Hashem, thank God we have the halachic system because what I have found time and time again is that having the halacha decide on our behalf can also be very liberating instead of us having to live with, oh my gosh, I made this decision. Uh, And that's true both for patients, family members, but also for clergy. Um, But more than that, I think that having the... um, the conversations about what our wishes are can make it so that we make the decision without it becoming a burden to our loved ones. So I say it in this context about ethical wills and advanced care directives because, you know, my my family talked about death a lot, but it was usually in the context of like, well, if I die, you know, no XYZ. Sometimes it was like, if I die, you can have this ring, you know, which uh, which felt like, I don't want to think about it. But other times, you know, it's sort of like a responsibility that comes with really loving someone. So as much as I hated it as a kid, I see as an adult that it's just a way that my parents have shown me love. And, you know, it's, it's very clear to me what their wishes are. And Baruch Hashem, thank God they're both alive and well right now. Um, but it, it, it it's become something I see that I want to make sure that I also give my family. So you know, when, when I think about what I want my daughter, Ella, to know, um, you know, Akiva and I, my husband, we have advanced care directives that we wrote in when we were 25. You know, we have, we know what each other would would want and we've set up situations so that Ella would also know. Uh, and, and one of the things that's fantastic about ethical wills is you can actually write not just about like medical decisions, but I want to make sure that you know that this is a value or a legacy that I want you to carry on or that I want you to feel embraced by, or this is one of the, my favorite moments we had together. I don't want you to forget it. My grandma, my, my mom's mom, passed away when I was in fifth grade and she was like one of my best friends and she wrote me a long letter before she died. And I still have that letter and I reread it all of the time. It's like one of my most cherished possessions. I have this letter where she she told me what mattered most to her and how much she loved me and what she wished for me. And I, you know, that's one of the things, if, as much as we're afraid to talk about death, if we have the courage and bravery to face death and think about it before we're at that point, we can actually give each other something really amazing to hold on to forever. So I, I do think that having those conversations can be really helpful when it comes to my daughter, Ella, um, you know, I want her to be someone who, isn't afraid to talk about death. I understand. And, you know, just having been a kid myself, like I don't, I'm sure she's not going to want to think about her parents dying or anything like that. But I guess I really want her to grow up knowing that we have to cherish the life that we have and love each other and love Hashem and, and also recognize that death is a part of life. Um, and it's not something to be absolutely terrified of or run away from or hide from. It's, it's, you know, something to be honest about our pain and and anger and hurt and sadness in relation to. But I, I think, you know, when I was pregnant with her, I officiated funerals and I went to Shiva homes and I visited the sick in the hospital. And I remember thinking, I'm so grateful that she's a part of this because she before she's even physically entering this world on her own as an independent person, she can do these mitzvot and come into the world with that kind of empathy and sensitivity sort of built into her DNA. You know, I know there are some people who would look at that and say, oh, you know, you shouldn't be in a cemetery or, um, you know, there's, and her related to it, but for me, it really felt like this is something she and I can do together that's already part of me teaching her about this world in a loving way and in a holy way. And, uh, you know, Ella, before she was even one, had encountered uh, the death of someone close to us. And she, I really think she was a source of of empathy and presence for that person. And I'm immensely proud of her for that. And uh, yes, she was a baby, she's just a little tiny baby. For me, I see in her soul that she has this innate joy and love of life that I think also has this like presence and empathy that I'm so grateful is something that she, God gave her. So I I pray that that's something that um, she brings to life in her own way. It doesn't have to be my way, um, but whatever way is right for her and her soul's work in this world.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. Hope you enjoyed. And don't forget to check out all the other episodes from this drop. As always, we'd love to hear from you at maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org. That's maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org.